So the disciples on a beach um, eating breakfast with Jesus. That, uh, that line in verse 12, come and have breakfast. It's one of my favorite lines in scripture, I think. I'm not sure if I say that every time come and preach here, but it's just beautiful, isn't it? The Lord of glory, the God of all the earth, the one who's defeated death, come back from the grave, defeated the final boss that faces all humanity, death, death itself. And what does he do in his resurrection power? Sits down with some disciples to have breakfast up in some northern strange part of the country. So what on earth is going on here? Um, why do we have a story like this about the king of glory eating breakfast with some disciples? What on earth does it teach us? That's really what we're going to ask and answer this evening. What do we learn about Jesus? Point number one, plenty of things. And then what does he want us to do? There's a story within a story. You might have heard echoes of it if you know the beginning of Peter and the disciples' stories. What happened right back at the beginning when Jesus called them. There's echoes of that story in this story here. And that's all about what God wants us to do, what Jesus is calling us to do this evening and with the rest of our lives. So two things this evening, really. What do we learn about Jesus? And what are we supposed to do about that? What do we do with the rest of our lives? But okay, what do we learn about Jesus? The first thing is that he gives us exactly what we need. Isn't he a good Lord who provides for his people? I mean, think of what these men had gone through. That list of disciples right at the beginning. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee, a couple of others who aren't named. These disciples had been through an awful lot. Just think about it. The last couple of weeks before the crucifixion and all the trauma of that, they'd seen Jesus riding into Jerusalem. They'd had their hopes pinned on him, full of hope they were, seeing him ride down the Mount of Olives on a donkey like Solomon and David had done in years gone by, coming to Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest. He's going to be the king. He's going to rescue all of us. What an emotional high that would have been. And then a couple of days later, crucify him crucify him and then they really did crucify him and they were crushed they fled and ran away and disappeared and laid low for a good while and then a few days later the women start to say we've seen him alive so they've gone from emotional high to crushing lows to highs again is he really alive are we are we seeing things they start to see him in locked rooms a couple of times they see him and then he sends them back to Galilee um, some people say this is the disciples kind of giving up and going back home to the jobs that they had done before. You know, all is lost. They might as well go back home and do some fishing. I think that's a bit harsh because in Mark chapter 16, um, you can go back and look at it later. Jesus actually tells them to go back to Galilee through the angels. It says, go up to Galilee, wait for me there and I'll, I'll come and meet you there. And so here they are. They've gone back home, back up to the northern lands of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, where most of them come from back to their old jobs, because to be honest, I think this is what they needed. After a couple of weeks of emotional highs and lows of all that exhaustion, they need to, a night of fishing, don't they? Maybe you have an uncle like that. Maybe this is you. Um, the thing that you like to do when you've really been through the mill, when you're stressed out, is to go and take your fishing tackle, collect up a few worms or whatever it is you put on the hooks, and go out to a quiet lake, to a quiet spot in the river, to the, um, to the, to the seaside, and do some fishing, just to relax and rest. That's what they need. They've been through an awful lot. They need a bit of therapy. And what better therapy is there than to go fishing? Back to the old thing, back to get some food. They're poor men as well. So maybe they're just, well, 
going and getting some food for themselves. But they go back fishing. And then what happens, predictably, at least this turns out like all the fishing trips I think I've ever been on, except one <laughs> uh, where we caught a tiny fish. But this one ends like most other fishing trips I've been on. They don't catch anything all the way through the night. Exhausting work. Nothing to show for it. Futile, frustrating, not a hint of a bite. And then they're pulling back into shore. Nothing to show for it. And what do they need? Exhausted from the last few weeks. Exhausted from this night of fishing. Well, I can't think of anything better than a good hot cooked breakfast when you're feeling like that, right? And Jesus provides it for them. What a good Lord he is. Give us today our daily bread. And more than bread, he barbecues some fish in the early morning and says, lads, you've had a long night. Come and have breakfast. What a good Lord he is. He provides for us. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus. The second is he's interested in people like, like you and me. People from small towns in not particularly center of the universe kinds of places. We, we all know um, Kledach is the center of the universe, but not many other people know that. Similar to Amadford as well. It's a bit of a melting pot, I imagine Kledach is, full of some people who have brilliant educations and wonderful jobs, some people who have not much education and struggle to get a job. A real melting pot of people who've grown up here and people who've moved in here. That's what Galilee was like. Galilee of the Gentiles. Lots of people from other countries who'd settled there. Not the center of the universe. Not Jerusalem. Not Athens. Not Rome. These people were fishermen. Not much education. Normal blue-collar, average Joe jobs. But Jesus was interested in them. Jesus said, go back home to Galilee and I'll come and see you. The king of glory risen from the dead, I'll come and meet you on a fishing trip and cook you breakfast. How about that? Jesus is interested in average people like you and me, even anonymous people like whoever these other two disciples that don't even get named. Jesus comes and meets them for breakfast. The risen Lord in his own flesh and bone body. Isn't that amazing? He's interested in people like you and me. So, okay, provision and poor people like you and us, but even people like Peter, if you know the story and how John's gospel goes, just a couple of chapters ago, Peter has done something, the worst thing he'd ever done in his life. It was the moment of Jesus' greatest need. He'd been betrayed by Judas, abandoned by all the other disciples, and Peter had summoned up the courage to follow him. He was sitting at a distance at Jesus' court appearance, and yet, when Jesus needs him at his side, Peter denies him three times. A little servant girl says, oh, I recognize you. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And then somebody else and somebody else say the same thing. And three times he says, no, I don't even know him. Disowns Jesus completely. Peter's had a crushing low. But what does he do when he twigs that it's Jesus? John, the disciple Jesus loves, that's how he talks about himself in this gospel, in this eyewitness account that he's written. John twigs, first of all, oh, it's Jesus. Of course it is, it's the Lord. Whispers it into Peter's ear and he realizes, what does he do? What would you do? If the last time you'd seen Jesus had been the, to deny him, to disown him, to do the worst thing you'd ever done, now you feel like, don't you feel like crawling away in a hole, like jumping over the other side of the boat and pretending that you didn't see him. That's what I feel like doing whenever I sin. Whenever I turn away from the Lord, I feel like I could never go back. I've got to improve myself before I can get back to him. But that's not what Peter does. Peter's an impulsive man, isn't he? If you know the stories, you'll know that about Peter. Putting his foot in his own mouth, not literally, 
Um, but, you know, saying things that he often regrets, doing things before thinking about them, always leading the way, sometimes in foolish ways. But he's impulsive, but this is a beautiful impulse, isn't it? He doesn't jump over the other side of the boat to hide from Jesus. As soon as he realizes who it is, he gets on his outer coat, tucks it in, tucks everything out of the way and flings himself into the water to get to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. He twigs that it's Jesus and jumps into the water to get to Jesus as fast as he can. What a beautiful impulse that is. No hiding. No, he knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is himself. And all that he wants to do is get, is get to Jesus' feet as fast as he can to say sorry, to say, Lord, would you welcome me back? Lord, would you have me back? And that's what the next story is, if you carry on reading later on this evening. From verse 15, it's Jesus reinstating Peter. He asks him three questions. Um, Do you love me? And brings him back into the fold, forgives him, and gives him a great task to do. But more of that later. Okay, so Jesus, who is is this Lord? Well, he's the provider. He's the one who, who wants to know people like you and I, average people, whoever we are, even if you're as bad or worse than Peter. Tuck whatever it is that's holding you back into your belt. Fling yourself into the water and come to him as fast as you can. Don't hide over the other side. Don't pretend that you can, I don't know, improve yourself until you're worthy of coming to him. No, as soon as you hear him call your name, as soon as you recognize who he is, recognize who you are, this is what it is to be a Christian, isn't it? To get rid of everything that's holding you back and fling yourself at his feet as fast as you possibly can. So let's follow Peter's impulse. Those three things about the Lord should hopefully lead us to him. He provides, even for people like us, even if we're worse than Peter. Don't hold back. Get yourself in the water and swim to Jesus. But there's one maybe even more obvious thing that we've missed, which is the fact that Jesus is alive. That's maybe the first and most obvious thing we should have noticed at the very beginning. But it shouldn't be obvious in this story because... A few days before this, Jesus had been put to death brutally. He had been nailed to a cross and hung there for hours. They'd put a spear into his side and into his heart. And then, before the days of antibiotics, they had laid him down on his own, without treatment, in a tomb. Already dead, but you know, if he hadn't been already dead, he certainly would have been after doing that. Jesus was thoroughly, brutally murdered killed dead dead no coming back from that and yet here he is a couple of weeks later alive and walking around and giving them fishing advice and cooking breakfast and calling out and speaking you see he's alive not in some kind of um, Mufasa way if you're familiar with the Lion King you know that if with the help of a friendly Timon and Pumbaa um, what are they um animals-wise. A meerkat and a, and a warthog. Okay, with the help of a meerkat and a warthog on a quiet night, if you're listening to the voice of the stars, you know, in the right frame of mind, you can hear him whispering, inspiring your heart, because, you know, he lives on in our hearts. It's not like that at all. He's there with his flesh and bones cooking them breakfast. He's not a ghost. He's eating fish and baking bread and saying, come on, come and have breakfast. He's alive and actually there in a body. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that he's the Lord, the king of everything. Because what happens in a, in a game, in a film, if you defeat the strongest boss there is, then that makes you the boss. What other 
biggest, darkest, scariest enemies of humanity. Sin, death, and the devil, evil personified. And what does Jesus do? What has he done a few days before at the cross? He's killed them all, defeated them all. So his death was not a resuscitation. Uh, maybe you know some stories of people being resuscitated in A&E through the, um, the kind of wonderful wisdom of doctors and technology of today, or maybe some Bible stories about Lazarus, for example. Resuscitation is a bit like this. Death loses its grip on you for a while. But eventually, a few months, a few years, a few decades later, it'll grab you again and pull you under. Like Lazarus, like perhaps people that we know, resuscitation is being es- escaping from death for a little while before it pulls you under again. But what did Jesus do? He wasn't just resuscitated, he was resurrected. Jesus, in his death, because of who he was, God, because he was utterly perfect, because he paid the debt of sin, he didn't just escape death for a little bit, for it to pull him under a few years later. No, he'd ripped the tendons of death out, smashed the bones, crushed the hands so that death couldn't hold him any longer, couldn't get a hold of him ever again. He'd gone through death and out the other side to defeat death to take out the the fangs of satan he can't touch you anymore to pay for sin once and for all so he was alive really in a body flesh and bone eating fish alive what does that mean for us well it means one day you'll follow him it means one day as he was alive so you will be too not only is he the lord but one day you'll see this lord face to face so the first thing that you need to do is, is not just if you hear him. You know, it might be a nice thing to jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus. It's that you really must do that. There's nobody else to swim to, that he really is the Lord. And you have to turn your back on turning your back on him. All this life lived walking away from him has to be in the background, has to be in the past for you. You have to turn and come to him as the Lord over everything. There's nobody else who can help. Nobody else who can forgive. Nobody else who can give us life like this. We have to face the fact that he's the Lord and come to him. But he's a good Lord, isn't he? Provides for people like you and me, even if we're Peters or worse. So he's the Lord and he gives us a future, not just a future when we die or beyond the grave, but a future that affects today as well. See, Jesus has his flesh and bone One day you will too. If you turn to him, come and join yourself to Jesus. One day this will be you in a new body, clothed in immortality. They recognized him, didn't they? But there was something glorious, even more solid about him. They couldn't quite get their minds around him. It said in, in verse 12, I think, they're desperate to ask, who are you? But they know who he is. This is Jesus. They recognize him and yet there's just something different about him. And as it was with him, so it will be with you and I one day. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 talks about this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who've fallen asleep, so you may not grieve as those others do who have no hope. For, listen to this, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Did you hear that? Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what happened to him, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Falling asleep is Paul's way of talking about the death of our bodies. That our bodies fall asleep, immediately our souls are with him in glory, and one day he'll wake our bodies up again. Join them together with our souls, if you like. Waking us up fully to live in 
bodies with him face to face, eating fish, drinking with him in the kingdom of God, dancing, not floating two feet off the floor, but walking and skiing, not telepathically, I don't know, soul radioing each other or something. No, speaking to each other, loving, embracing, exploring, enjoying what human life was meant to be perfected in the presence of the one who made us. Isn't that good news? Is that something to look forward to? Jesus is alive. What does that mean? It means he's Lord. So come to him. No one has to come to. It means one day, not just that he'll be alive, but you'll be alive with him too. Can I give you a couple of things really practically um, to kind of show you how this balances up the Christian life really nicely? Maybe a couple of things to take home and think about. Thing number one, this means we can live life without regrets because this life isn't all that there is. So those crumbling knees underneath you, that body that can't quite fit into the outfits you wish it could fit. And, you know, you look at those pictures and you're reminiscing about the days when the children were small and they're gone now and we're sad. And reminiscing about the body we used to have and that's gone now and we feel sad and regret. And reminiscing about the rugby we used to play and the football and the games and the holidays we were going to go on and the pandemic came and wrecked everything. And we often live life full of regrets. And the resurrection says, no regrets. This isn't all that there is. One day you'll live in a body, clothed in immortality, with fresh knees, youth renewed like the eagles, sitting down with lions and lambs, enjoying bodies again with Jesus in a new creation, enjoying all human life was meant to be. So no regrets. You can live this life generously, open-handedly. Don't need to grasp it or think of the past as something that's dead and gone, never to return. No, we have life before us in the future, life to the full, as God intended us to be, with him, perfected forever. So this life is not all that there is, so no regrets, living open-handedly, generously. We can be sacrificial and and give away this life, knowing really we're not giving away anything because we have it all to look forward to in the future. That's thing number one, okay? No regrets. There's more to life than just this life. But the other thing is, this world is really important, Isn't it? God made it good in the beginning. And then what did he come and do once it had all gone wrong? Sent his own son in a body to redeem this world. And and when he'd done that job, when it was finished, after he died, he came back in a body, in flesh and bone, to live in that body forever. He wasn't wasn't freed from, from the kind of physical world in a soul to go back to heaven because that's what we're looking forward to. No, that's kind of Greek philosophy that's That's mostly nonsense. Jesus came back from the dead in a body to reign in flesh and bone forever as the physical king, human, God and man, forever. So there's a great old hymn, which we almost never sing, which goes something like this. A man there is, a real man. Um, And I can't remember the rest of it, but you can look it up later. And it's all about how Jesus has flesh and bone, how blood still beats through his heart, how he spilled that blood for us to give us hope and a future. So this world is good and God has proven it and said he's going to renew it and make it good again through giving Jesus a body and him dying and rising in a body for us. So this world isn't all that there is, no regrets. You can give it away. But also this world is really important to God. He's redeemed it in Christ's body so that when we look around and see injustice, when we look around and see hunger, when we look around and see physical pain, we want to go and do something about it. We want to go and be a part of bringing 
about the fullness of Christ's victory that he's already won on the cross. We want to be a part of renewing this world as it will one day be fully renewed when Christ returns again. Did you see that? We can give ourselves completely to all God has done to redeem and rescue the world. And we can live open-handedly, sacrificially, humbly. Maybe you can take that home and think about the balance that the resurrection gives us. Hope and a future and real, um, a real job and commission to do right now in these bodies. Not just wait and hold our nose and kind of look forward to heaven, but hard work to do now. And that's actually what the second point is all about. The story within a story. Let me give you that um, briefly and then we'll turn to prayer. What's going on in this story? I wonder if you heard echoes of Luke chapter 5 in here. Do you remember all the way back at the beginning when Peter and the disciples were first called? You can look it up with me if you want. Luke chapter 5. They've just met Jesus. And Jesus is on the shores of the same lake in Galilee with the same people, Simon, Peter and co. And when Jesus had finished speaking to the crowds, he turns to Simon and says, come on. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. This is Luke chapter 5 from verse 4. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Sound familiar? All night, no fish. But Jesus says, come on, one last go. And then when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so also were James and John, now they were there on the same beach as well, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, listen to this, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. So that's supposed to be on our heads. This is who Peter was commissioned to be from the beginning, a fisher of men. And now they're back here at the end of the story in John's gospel and they're fishing again. So this really happened. Okay, they were actually out on a fishing trip. 153 fish, that's an eyewitness detail. They counted them and they were there and remembered and put that in the story because it happened. But this isn't only a story of what happened. It's also a picture of what they're supposed to do. See if you can follow this. Okay, they're in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what this place is called. And the sea was often, in the Old Testament, a picture of the world, the Gentile world. Frothing, foaming, going this way and that, turned away from God, a bit of a dangerous and dark place. The sea is a picture in the Old Testament of the Gentile world sometimes. What does Peter do? Peter, who's been commissioned to be a fisher of men. Well, once he's come to the Lord Jesus and been restored and forgiven, what does he do again at the end of the story? He flings himself back into the water and he pulls out a huge net full of fish, 153 fish. And the net doesn't break this time. It's an unbreakable net. So what's going on? Peter's acting out his job, isn't he? Restored, forgiven by the Lord. He goes back into the world that he's sent into and pulls out all sorts of different kinds of fish. A huge number of fish people in an unbreakable net, which I think is supposed to be a picture of the church. That's just exactly what God has planned to pull the nations of the world together under the leadership of the apostles to bring people to him. That's what Peter's supposed to do, isn't it? This is going to be his job to go into the nations, out to the world, to the chaos of people who don't know God and to say, come on, come into the church, this unbreakably big, beautiful body of people 
from all sorts of different tribes and tongues and nations. The church is all, it's, um, often full of holes, isn't it? Uh, often seems like it's not a particularly impressive thing. But Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is exactly what God has planned it to be, to pull together all the fish of the sea, all the people of the world, under the apostles' leadership, to bring them to his feet. So, I wonder if you'll take up that commission for yourself as well. I wonder if you'll swim to Jesus, coming to him with all of our struggles, with all of our failures, with all of our smallness, with all of our needs, and recognize he's the Lord. He can give us even life beyond the grave. He'll give us our daily bread. Whether we're Peters or anonymous people, whatever we're struggling with, feeling like this evening, come on, tuck in whatever's holding you back and come and swim to Jesus. Once you've done that, I wonder if we can pray that he would help us to jump back into the world, back out to our friends and our neighbours and our family. Maybe he's put somebody on your heart specifically this evening who you want to go and say, Lord, would you help me reel them in? Would you help me bring them in, into this great big net, the beautiful church, that I might bring them to your feet, that they might know you, your provision, your love for people like us, for people like Peter, that they might know not just that, but hope, hope for the future and a task, a mission for today.